Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Good Grow Great Podcast. I'm Talia Toha and this is an episode that I'm excited to share with you because I interview someone on Clubhouse. A lot of you guys know what Clubhouse is. If you haven't really dialed in, it's a really this cool just kind of drop-in audio chat type of an app. You get to come in and you just kind of jump into some conversations or you get to listen to people interviewing each other, talking about uh, whatever it is that they're really interested in, right? So this particular episode I did several months ago. We recorded back when Clubhouse was still in beta mode and they were still figuring out the audio at that time. And so we recorded the episode live with the Clubhouse icon. And what that means is that it's the person that they feature on their app thumbnail on the Apple iTunes app thumbnail essentially. So, and at that time that was Axel Mansour, who is fantastic. And he is just as a amazing human being. I get to know him and we get to chatting about how he went from daytime Emmy nominated to collaborating with AT&T, McDonald's, Lexus, being on the number five spot on Spotify's viral 50s chart and of course becoming a clubhouse icon. And of course we talk about how he grew up being a third culture kid, basically moving from one country to another how he adjusted and what that actually did to his psychology and his worldview and how he started a music. And he is now a musician, of course, and recently was serenaded by Grammy winner John Mayer on Clubhouse, which is super fun, of course. But we talk about some really honest things as well that not a lot of people talk about. Right. And like what happens when we don't have things together? What happens when you feel like your life is falling apart? What happens when you're angry at someone? What happens when you feel like the world is telling you to do your work, your your business, your art, your creativity one way and you feel absolutely against it. So what are some of those things? And if you ever feel conflicted or feel like you're on your own doing things your way, this would be the episode for you to tune into. Of course, because this is a live uh, Clubhouse room recording, we did rely on the audio of the app. And so just I just wanted to give you a heads up that the audio quality is a little bit harsher sometimes. So make sure that you perhaps um, dial down the volume just a little bit to begin with and then just adjust as you go accordingly. So without further ado, of course, you guys, be sure to hit that follow, at collect, subscribe. That way we can have that episode ready for you in your device whenever you're going out for a run, out on an errand, or just kind of chilling around the house, right? And it's ready to go for you. Um, and so I cannot wait to share with you Axel Mensor. Let's dive right in. Just to kind of kick us off, I thought we'd start with, you know, your uh, your impact, I guess, from Mauritius, I guess. I came from Indonesia, which is halfway around the world, and that's and I really, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I heard in the in in the other room the other day that you, um, you know, that you're huge on kind of traveling and going to Japan. But uh, what was it like yeah. growing up in Mauritius? Well, so I, I spent two years in Mauritius, um, 
I did uh, my first two years of high school here um, in the British system of, uh, of education. And uh, before that, I, I had moved around a bunch. And so um, I had actually... So uh, I, I, like, I'm a third culture kid, which is uh, basically means like you moved around a lot, usually internationally, and, and grew up in a lot of different cultures, straddling a lot of different cultures. Um, I'm also mixed race. Uh, so it's a kind of had the double whammy <laughs> being like multicultural. Um, and, uh, I can answer the question either of like growing up in Mauritius or just kind of growing up all over the world. Uh, the reality is that like growing up in Mauritius happened in the context of, of moving, uh, schools, if not countries every two years from the time I was born until, uh, well, really college. Uh, I was reflecting on it re- recently, actually, and I, I realized that I have, a, I have an interesting relationship with loss and grief as a result of the way that I grew up. Because, um, you know, every time you move, even if you're moving, like, cities, even if you're in the same country, it's like it's, kind of, it's the end of one thing and the beginning of something new. But when you're moving countries, it's like that to an exponential degree. And anybody who's you know, an expat of any sort can, can relate to that. Um, and then when you do that as a kid and that's ingrained in you at a very young age and it's, it's your way of relating to the world just growing up, uh, you know, it has an effect. (laughs) It has a compounding effect. You know, I also got bullied a lot growing up. I've definitely talked about that in other rooms. Um, and so it was like I, I learned to leave my old life behind almost entirely because I would try to reinvent myself every time I got somewhere new, but then I would just end up getting bullied for something else. <laughs> so, you know, either like I was getting bullied, you know, in Bethesda, Maryland for being a brown kid, or I was getting bullied in Zimbabwe for being an American or and, and, and a Jew, um, or I was getting bullied you know, in Mauritius for being an American. Um, and so I, I learned pretty, I learned through the harshness of the world that, uh, you know, that basically like if you, if you leave it up to people, especially kids, um, they'll find ways to make you the other. Uh, and I had to really contend with that with, for a lot of my life. Um, so growing up, you know, was not easy. It was not easy. It taught me a lot. I learned a lot from it. I learned how to adapt. I learned how to be flexible with my identity and with my perspectives. And I learned how to talk to anybody and, and break into social circles and how to, how to meet people where they're at uh, and also how to like find the commonalities between me and other people very easily. You know, it kind of... It, forced those skills upon me just for kind of for social survival um it also fucked me up in a lot of ways yeah it it also like you know instilled this deep sense of uh not being enough for most of my life and it it also like made me mistrustful of things that last too long um you know and like what what is that what does that actually mean it's totally subjective but like if things if 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 things start to feel static, uh, you know that that used to freak me out. 
Um, because it'd be like, no, like constant change and evolution is like, that's the only way to be in life. Um, and I had to really unlearn a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag, but I feel like for a lot of people growing up is a mixed bag. Yeah. Well, and I like that you kind of touch on something that not a lot of people would admit in a lot of ways when they are moving constantly growing up or maybe even into adulthood. I know that when you mentioned that moving from Mauritius and all these other places in the world uh, makes you feel that in a lot of ways you are, you know, if if nothing is moving, that something is a little bit off, if that's if that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, and so what was kind of um, the thing that grounded you and, and was able to allow you to, you know, you were saying adjust and kind of, you know, understand that and learning to love yourself, right? And, yeah. um, and understanding that there's always going to be something else that someone's going to point out about us. Right. So what was that thing? Was that, uh, you know, your family? Was that a friend? Like, what, what, what was some of those no, things? It's definitely not my family. <laughs> <laughs> my family, uh, growing up especially, less so now because, like, my, my sister is, like, a therapist and my brother has done a lot of therapy himself and I've done a lot of therapy, but like we were a super fucking dysfunctional family growing up. Um, no, my, my sense of grounding, um, really didn't start to, you know, I I didn't even start to have awareness that I needed that in my life, uh, until I was about 19. And I, I won't say that it was directly the result of this. Uh, I think a lot of things started to kind of, coalesce around a similar time but uh definitely when i was 19 i I had my first acid trip um and a lot of the things that i thought i knew about myself a a lot of people you know it's funny because i know this about myself but most people don't know this but like growing up i had several depressive episodes uh i left a suicide note for my parents when i was in sixth grade um i like was riddled with anxiety um, and just like and perfectionistic tendencies and then just like caught in this self-defeating cycle. Um, and so I, I, I was an unhappy kid. Like I, I was a d- deeply unhappy person, um, but I was really, really good at covering it up. And very, very few people in my life knew because um, I was always smiley and always like kind of, just trying to make other people happy because I realized that was the path of least resistance. Um, and just like being the peacemaker and, and basically just trying to find ways to make other people happy and not even realizing that that would, that, that could come at the cost of my own happiness. Like that wasn't even in my awareness. Um, and it was really only when I had my acid trip that a lot of this stuff became very clear to me just that there was a real problem. And like, there was this way in which I had been living my life. That was basically a lie. Um, and it was, I wasn't living for myself. I was living for others. Um, and I saw it really clearly and I was like, fuck, that's a problem. And it, it sent me down this kind of, um, this path, but it started with like an identity crisis where I, I liken it to being like a chameleon that forgot his original colors. You know, I had shape shifted so many times through all the times that I had moved 
and just tried to be everything to everybody other than to myself, um, where I, I, I didn't have a stable sense of identity. So I, but, you know, the, the answer to your question being like, I didn't have grounding. I was not a grounded person. Um, and it was only once I started to realize just how lost I really was um, that I got on the path of learning how to love myself. And it, it wasn't even at my own behest. Like the only reason that I started to get on this path is because I was lucky enough to find somebody who had a, you know, a gift for seeing people for who they really are and not what they pretend to be. And, you know, that was my ex-girlfriend and, uh, she really, she saw the person I was truly. And she saw the kind of person I could be years before I did, before, like I even caught a glimpse of it. Um, she, I always told her that she, I, you know, she had this kind of x-ray vision. Um, and she was the one who, who really pointed out to me, you know, cause the closer that we got, you know, we ended up staying together for, for nine years and um, we started dating when, when I was 19 and the closer we got, the more she realized how like deeply tortured I was. And she was the one who pointed out and, and really encouraged me to get on this path of self love. And it was like, if you can figure out how to love yourself, everything else in your life is going to work out. And I didn't really know what to do with that. But in hindsight, um, you know, it really took somebody believing in me and somebody else being through her actions, telling me like, Hey, you are worthy of love for me to be even considering like, Oh, there's like self love is a thing that's, that's even worth working on um, or even worth considering because the point I wasn't, I was at in my life was like, self-hating like actively like going out of my way to beat myself down um and she was the one who really like introduced the concept of like self-love as a grounding force um and that of course led me into meditation um that also led me into therapy it led me into journaling you know as as a means of reflection and also processing and just like capturing you know, my emotional state. Um, and those things all kind of started around the age of 19. That's really incredible. And I think what I, I, I kind of took away from that is that you're almost like you're embracing this, um, the idea that someone else can highlight this for you. And I think that's a really hard concept for all of us probably to theoretically, we know this, right. But then, in practice, we're always like, and I know for myself, I, I always do that. Sometimes I'm like, no, that's not true, right? Like when someone else tells you about certain things that could help us. And so I'm kind of curious. Um, I know that in some of the things that you've shared um, online, um, in your Instagram feed, for instance, you mentioned the other day that it's easy to love, and I'm quoting this from one of your posts, it's easy to love the pretty parts, the smiley goody, mindful, people-pleasing parts, but what about the other parts? The misunderstood, angry, wounded parts. Can you expand, I know you've touched on this just a second ago, but can you expand a little bit more on why do you keep ignoring these? Like, why do you think that this is something that we, you know, and I know that all of us do this occasionally, we always put up this certain facade that everything is okay, 
when that's not necessarily true, right? Why do you think this is the case, Axel? I don't know if you have any thoughts there. Oh, I got thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Spill the beans. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll spill the tea on society. <laughs> I, think, I think that uh, society, I think it starts really early in our lives. I think society teaches us, not all societies, but definitely in Western society, uh, we are taught that there are good emotions and bad emotions. We are taught that like happiness and joy and excitement, those are good emotions. And you want as much of those in your life as possible. And the ads that we see in our lives absolutely do their job to reinforce that message. It's like, you want to be sexy. You want to be happy. You want to be laughing on a beach with like margaritas in your hands. Like that's life, you know, and anything that's not that is not life. And you don't want to do that. And, and it, it becomes this sort of violent cycle, like self-reinforcing cycle of like, good emotions are good, bad emotions are bad, which is this very black and white world. And it, and it ends up getting reinforced by our parents. So as kids, we're taught, like, if you're angry, that's bad. Like, hide your anger. If you're, if you're ashamed, that's bad. If you're sad, that's bad. And if it's not your parents teaching you that, it's the society around you. You know, it's the kids at school. It's the teachers. It's like all the people, most people in this world do not know how to handle their emotions. That's just a fucking fact. Because we're not, hand, like, the, the educational resources are not given to us. And so most of society doesn't know how to handle their emo- how to handle emotions. Like, and, and not just quote unquote good emotions, but all emotions, how to create space for these emotions and how to, by creating space, it actually allows them to dissipate instead of just pressurizing them over time by putting them away, putting them into some compartment of yourself that then over time, just like builds and builds and builds and builds and then you fucking blow up or you just blow up right away. But either way, like society doesn't give us good tools from the get of how to deal and how to embrace all of the different emotions that we feel. And so there are value judgments. And over time, those value judgments are built into the rest of society in terms of how we approach our lives, our, our emotional relationships, sorry, our romantic relationships and our work relationships. So, you know, we, we, of course we build these facades because we're taught like there are good things that you are allowed to show people. And there are bad things that you are not allowed to show people and things that are ugly are rage, anger, jealousy, sadness, despair. Like those things are not allowed. And if you show them, it means you're weak. And of course, when, when that's, that's the implicit lesson that is constantly being reinforced all around you, you're going to build a facade because the only way that you can be a real person is by allowing every part of yourself to exist and, and, and to embrace them and find constructive ways to express these emotions. There, there's always a constructive way to express emotion and there's always a destructive way to express an emotion. Um, and I, I think like we're just not given the tools. And so a lot of us have to try to figure them out ourselves. Uh, but a lot of people don't have time for that, you know, and when most people are poor, it's hard to justify, even though it actually will help in every aspect of your life. It feels less important to figure out how to deal with your emotions than how to just fucking pay rent. You know, like, again, society is not set up in a way to deal with to to 
to equip us with the emotional and mental tools that we need to actually thrive, not as worker bees in a, in a system of productivity, but as actual people. And I think that's where art steps in. I think that's where therapy steps in. I think that's where people who actually give a shit about people and not just what they can produce, like those industries, that's where they, they step in. But, you know, they're still activate. They're still trying to activate and be active within a society that clearly values something else. And so it's like, you can't, you're, you're trying to like fight, you're going against the grain. Um, and, and it's very much a process of like two steps forward, one step back. Mm, this is so, I, I really resonate with what you were saying, especially the part where there is almost like a systemic structure that's, ex, you know, external to us, or maybe internal to us as well. And we don't always know how to reconcile that. Right. And what you were saying just kind of reminded me, I mean, you're touching on music and the role of art perhaps in, in this type of situation. But I know that, you know, in my line of work, there's a lot of people who go to work every day or go, you know, run their business and they have to, you know, in order to be successful, they feel like they have to, you know, smile all the time or, you know, be a certain way all the time. I wonder if we can, um, this, if you can maybe share a little bit about, I know in some of the other rooms that you, you had, you touched on how um, emotionally you don't need to be um, in kind of like a sad place to write music, right? And speaking about your new song, I wrote this when I was mad. I'm curious if you can expand on ways that people can be at either sides of the spectrums of emotion and still produce good work, right? And so maybe that is something um, that you can kind of touch on in relation to your music, perhaps. I don't know if this is something that uh, that you can explain and expand upon, especially in the context of your new song, I wrote this when I was mad. Well, it's interesting, because like, even though, for example, like that song um, came out of the direct, like I was in an argument with somebody close to me, I felt incredibly misunderstood. And there was a part of me that wanted to just blow up at them. And then I was like, wait, that's not productive. <laughs> that's not going to help. Um, and uh, luckily I had the wherewithal to like, not like, just like fall into my, my defensive instincts there. Like I'm, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to take this feeling and, and do something else with it. And I'm just going to try to keep things constructive and, and productive in this conversation. But I still felt really unheard and I still felt really misunderstood. So I went home and I, you know, went into the studio and I was, I was in this process of just like writing a song a day. Um, and I went in and I started writing and like just the emotions and thoughts of that experience just like flowed out of me and poured into um, what I was making that day. And then that song came out like fully formed uh, within a, a couple hours, it was like three or four hours. Um, it was like a very raw moment that was then just immediately translated. Um, and it doesn't always work like that. Sometimes like, it's not like my songs always end up coming and, and connecting to an emotional place for me. Otherwise I just like, don't have any interest in writing them. But I think that's an example of how to take a feeling that could be destructive. You know, you could, I could have easily just like, lost my shit and just like gotten really upset and really angry and entered into some sort of like screaming match with this person. But instead, okay, I'm not going to do that because that's not constructive. 
and I'm going to try to meet this person where they're at instead. And then the, the things that I don't feel like have been met, I'm going to, you know, again, this is in hindsight. Like I wasn't having this clear thought process while it was all happening, but what ended up happening was like, I, I kept it for myself. And then instead of just letting it build and pressurize within myself and, and just be like, God, I'm so angry. I'm so misunderstood. I can't believe they, they thought that about me or whatever. I then externalized it. I took that internal feeling and, and created something with it. Um, and that helped me process the emotion. It's, it's the difference between like having an idea in your head or just having something uh, bothering you or just even if, even if it's like a to-do list, you know, if you got a bunch of tasks like floating around in your head, one of the most helpful things you can do is literally just write it down and externalize it. Because then it's not just floating around in your head anymore. You've literally created a place for this thing to exist. And in the act of doing that, you lessen the burden on your, like, on your mental you know, energy. Um, except, and this is like a very intense version of that. Except, and it's, it's emotional. You know, it's taking an emotion that is very intense. And instead of just letting it live inside of me, not having a place to exist... By giving it somewhere to exist, um, and the context of that place is something that is not me directly, you know, yelling at somebody or attacking somebody, but is instead me creating a song, like which is a, a cathartic process for myself. That's why I end up calling it a, a constructive creative act. Um, but again, we're talking about two sides of the spectrum, so that's on the like emotion that's on the, like kind of the angry side or the, the, the hurt, you know, what's underneath anger is pain and, and fear. Um, so that's on one end. And there, there's this myth of the tortured artist, right. Of like, Oh, I have to be miserable because if I'm on, only, if I'm miserable, can I produce work, you know, only, only under the threat of uh, existential crisis. Can I, Will, will the muse find me and will I be able to uh, create something of value? And it's an unfortunate myth. It's like, it's like the Van Gogh myth. Um, and there's a great book for anybody who's an artist, burgeoning or, you know, even if you don't call yourself an artist, um, there's a, a great book that's just about creativity. It's called The Artist's Way. Um, and I, I highly recommend it. I think it's a life-changing book. And it really opens up this harsh idea of what an artist is and isn't and turns it into this very open and loving thing instead. Um, And it talks about this myth of the tortured artist and just how unnecessary it is because why of all of the beautiful things that you can create in art or just you can create, why limit yourself to only a certain spectrum of emotion there's so much that can be expressed and so much that can be drawn on like and this works on either side like why only ever allow yourself to write when you're feeling happy or when when you're writing from a place of happiness but you know conversely why only allow yourself to write from a place of pain and anger like there should be space for everything um and, and you have a much richer creative experience with yourself if you allow, you know, for, the full, for that broad spectrum of emotions. Um, 
And that, I mean, that's, that's life, you know, art is an expression of life and life is an expression of art. And nobody, I, I think a life that is only one thing is not really a life at all. Whether you're striving for only happiness or if you're striving for only pain, um, it's not, you're not going to really be able to live. Like you need, you need to have the mix of emotions. Um, at least that's my, that's my philosophy. I love this. I mean, particularly your, your emphasis on having the, the freedom to navigate both sides of the, <laughs> the spectrum, right? As you say it, and um, embracing both the good and the bad and allowing it to kind of channel out and produce something meaningful, something beautiful, like music, work, right? Whatever that is. I'm kind of curious, when did you start writing music? Was this, have you always grown up in music? What was that like? Uh, I started writing music... Real, so I, I started playing guitar at the age of 13 <laughs> and like from the age of nine to 13, I was drawing a lot and I was doing a lot of like stick figure animating. There was this, um, there was this program that I found on the internet called pivot and it was the stick figure animator. And I remember I would spend hours and hours and hours recreating like anime fight scenes <laughs> like just recreating like Dragon Ball Z or like Naruto fight scenes. And I was like, I was, I still love anime um, and, and manga. And I was super, super into like Naruto and, and Bleach and a lot of other like shonen uh, anime. And I would like, I, I was convinced I was going to be a graphic artist or like, I, like I was going to do something in visual arts. The only thing is I was not very good. <laughs> and so I would like, I, I didn't really have like a natural talent for visual arts, but I, so I would trace stuff and not tell anybody because <laughs> I just wanted, I wanted my parents to be impressed. You know, I, 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 I very kind of, quickly realized that like, I, I just didn't really have like the talent for it. Um, although now I've gotten back into it because I've been like, you know, that was a part of me that I really liked and whether or not I'm like quote unquote talented at it, like it's a part of me that I still want to explore. And actually that's why for my recent EP, I've, um, well not recent for my oncoming EP forthcoming EP. Um, I actually have done the art for, for the entire EP, but started playing guitar when I was 13 uh, at the behest of my older brother, um, who basically was like, this is how you get girls to like you. Um, <laughs> and, and he was right. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's one piece of advice that he, you know, that, that, that did pan out. He was right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> learning to play guitar will make girls like you. Um, and boys, I mean, whatever you're into, um, and everything in between, it will make people like you. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I started playing guitar then and, uh, he was teaching me like, he, he taught me just like the very, very, very basics of like how to use a fretboard. And, uh, then was like, all right, go have fun. Like go do stuff. Um, so I'm self-taught. I, I never took like guitar lessons or, or, or singing lessons. And, and the reason I think I, st I started writing, but I didn't even know that it was writing was just because I didn't know how to read music. And so I would like try to copy the songs that I was listening to, 
but not know enough about music or how to play guitar to really copy. So I would get frustrated and then just start doing my own thing. Um, and uh, would start like exploring the fretboard. And, and that kind of gave way, maybe like two months in of playing guitar, I, I started to kind of write my own melodies and, and start to piece together things that I guess you could call songs. It was this sense of curiosity and, and discovery. I felt like an explorer. You know, I felt like one of those like Arctic explorers that had just discovered Antarctica or something, or thought that they had discovered it because there was already native people there. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, just like people who thought that they at least were pioneers. And I think I thought that I at least was a pioneer on the fretboard, just like finding these patterns and finding these weird chords and like shapes that I was like, why does this work? I don't get it, but it does. And it feels good. And just kind of, going through that um, was, I guess that was my introduction to, to songwriting without really knowing it. And I, and I started writing like song songs, you know, well, I'll say I, I was writing instrumental songs and I started trying to write pop songs after like being introduced in like 10th grade uh, to John Mayer, um, which by the way, I, you know, I, <laughs> I've talked many times about how John Mayer, Jack Johnson, Jason Raz, basically any guitarist with a J in their name <laughs> was like very influential for me at, at like that point in my life. Um, and it, it, it's been a, a crazy 14 year full circle um, because last night in Lullaby Club, uh, John Mayer came and, uh, and actually like performed a song for me. Um, John Mayer serenaded me, which was, I'm still reeling from that. And I still don't quite know what to do with it. I, I have a recording. I'm going to go listen to it later, probably before bed and just like be a giddy 14 year old. Um, and, uh, yeah, like that, that was, those were the artists that kind of took me from this little metalhead kid that was only ever learning, like, you know, super, technical progressive metal riffs because that was what my brother was always showing me uh and that was all the music that he gave me to starting to find out about pop music and like acoustic guitar and being like "Ooh, i love the sound of an acoustic it's, it's like such an exotic instrument um and uh that was like my intro into starting to try to write pop songs uh because i loved how catchy they were and i loved but like especially with john mayer he has this way of writing songs that like, if anybody is a musician in here, especially if you're a guitarist, you'll know what I'm talking about. But if you try to learn a, a John Mayer song on guitar, you'll be like, holy hell, I had no idea that these songs were so, so hard to learn. He, he's like the master of taking something incredibly complex and incredibly technical and difficult to play and making it sound like the simplest three, four chord song. You would have no idea unless you're playing his songs and you're like, nobody writes like this. Like it's this. And so there's this beautiful simplicity and accessibility on the surface. Um, that's like, that can feel very universal. Uh, and then there's this real depth of musicianship uh, underneath that just, you know, as a musician, like, gives you something to really like 
bite into and learn and, and just play with and expand. Um, and that was one of the things that I just fell in love with his ability to write like that. This is exactly why I think it's important for people to hear about, you know, some of the things that, that are behind the scenes, right? Because I think even the process of songwriting, right, the work-life alignment that you touched on, the inspiration for why you, you believe in what you believe in, I think those are all so, so important. I did want to kind of circle back and underline your talking about um, you know songwriting and I think this is probably true in most work domains and where people whether they work nine to five or they have their own business startup whatever it is and are their own musician where do you start typically like if if you know in in the process of creation whatever that is ideation if you will right um, where do you start do you start with the pen and paper do you start with like oh, I hate that what happened yesterday at that restaurant or whatever. Where do you start, Axel? You know, my process has definitely changed over time. So I'll just talk about what it is now. And and this is with the caveat that very often, like the way songs get written is never the same way twice. Um, but if I was going to be like, this is generally the way I kind of go about it, I find a chord progression on guitar um, or piano. There's usually some sort of melodic progression. It'll be something about it that'll just be like, oh, that sounds cool. And I want to I jam on it. And then I'll jam on it, which is really just me playing it over and over and just kind of having fun with it. And in the right moments, uh, it'll just make me want to sing. And then I'll start to mumble. Like sometimes I won't even have any words or anything specific to mumble, I'll just be like, you know, just like things like that. And then that'll eventually give way to like some sort of like mispronounced mumble that turns it, that reminds me of a word. And then I'm like, Ooh, okay, maybe, maybe that word. And then I say that word over and over. And then maybe that word turns into a phrase. And then that phrase makes me think of like this time in my life or this thing that I wasn't even thinking about. And it's this kind of process of, um, following this unknown road that usually ends up bringing me back to some unconscious feeling that I, I hadn't like, I hadn't known that I was feeling. Um, and then I'll usually, I'll have this moment where I'll be like, Oh, that's what this is about. And then, like, I'll work from there. And so, like, then, a, then, like, a concept for the song will kind of dawn on me. And then I'll start to work on it and try to flesh it out there. Um, and I, I do this thing, which is just for me, like, and it may not work for anybody else. But, like, I will go between just, like, writing in my head and only writing lyrics in my head, like, with the guitar in my hands and then pausing and going to like my phone and typing out the lyrics and then trying to write lyrics from that place instead. And so, and I just kind of go between those two kind of places. I see them as very different ways of thinking about lyrics and thinking about like the concept of the song. One is more analytical uh, because it's right in front of me and like I can see it. And one is more emotional and instinctive because it's more about the feel and it's just like, it's a more intuitive like piece of the process. Um, 
and I often find that if I get stuck in one aspect, if I, if I move to the other, it can help me kind of find, like, find the path again. Um, and I'll kind of go back and forth between those two until I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm at a place with this that, uh, that feels good. That's really that's really great because I I know that um, a lot of songwriters when you kind of talked about starting with melody and I think there are a lot of songwriters who who do that right they start with the music first and then they kind of start to fill in the gaps almost like they have a certain feel or beat to it what was because I know that you mentioned you studied people like you know Mayer and all the all the J's as you mentioned it yeah. all the guitarists. <laughs> um, did you, because, and you mentioned that there's that evolution, right? Do you mm-hmm. consciously, do you consciously go into songwriting wanting to create something slightly different from the previous song or is it really, just, <laughs> go ahead. I love that you asked that. Um, so I had a real insecurity for a really long time about repeating myself and I actually tie it back to being a third culture kid. Um, where it's like this, this need for constant evolution. And like, also it was also tied to my, you know, my, my insecurity of like not being enough and like needing to prove that I'm good enough to not repeat myself. And so, um, I was like horribly afraid of, uh, of, of creating something that sounded anything like my previous song. <laughs> and like to the point where it was, it was really, uh, it actually worked against me because I would write these songs and people would be like, these are good, but like, they feel like they could come from like 10 different artists, you know, like not like these songs don't really feel like they're from the same person. And it was because I was like forcing myself to like come at it from a completely different angle. Um, but it also, you know, gave me the experience of trying to wear many hats as a, as a, as an artist and as a, as a musician. Um, now, uh, I, I, I definitely don't push myself as much on that. Then it's also because my, my philosophy on like, how do I evaluate like my own music has really changed. Cause it used to be very much about like, is this good or is this great? You know? And like only, only working on something if I was like, Oh, this is great. And now my philosophy is, is this honest? And that's pretty much it. And it's like, if it's honest, then it doesn't matter if I'm repeating myself. If it's honest, it doesn't matter if it's simple. If it's honest, it doesn't really matter what it looks like as long as it feels honest. Um, And that to me is a much more freeing place to write from because this idea of like, oh, I have to, I can't repeat myself. I'm not even allowed to use the same word twice in a song. Cause that's like unoriginal. There's this real like emphasis on originality for a lot of artists. And I, I think that originality is just influences disguised. <laughs> like I don't really think that there's like that much originality. And I don't even think what people crave is originality. I think that, that what they crave is honesty and something that, that they can project themselves into you know people what we really want is to be able to connect with something and and we're all mirrors um 
and the more honest of a, of a product or a, a piece or whatever you give somebody, the easier it is for them to connect to that because it allows them to connect to their own honesty. Um, and you're just, you're just basically a, you're a vehicle for that, which is a really beautiful thing. I think that's why, that's why songs take on that. That's why art in general, it's like, you make it with an intention and you make it with a meaning for yourself. But once you put it out into the world, like it's no longer yours. You know, when, when I experience a John Mayer song, it's my John Mayer song. It's not John Mayer's John Mayer song. Right. Um, so that's why I think coming at it from an angle of like, is this honest or not? At least for me and the kind of music that I like to make, you know, with, with the intention and the goal that I have for it, which is not to make as much money as possible. Um, because that approach may not actually work for creating international smashes. Um, so, you know, f- but for my goals, for the things that I want to do with my art um, and, and the kind of artist that I want to be, I've found that that's a much more helpful place to work from. I think this is so great. And I'm so glad that you brought up honesty in, and not just in your work, but I think in a lot of ways in your life as well, because it does kind of start to, weave into our lives, right? If we're not honest with our work and whether we love it or whether we don't or whether what we're doing out there is is truthful, it's kind of hard to then go back home and feel in a lot of ways at peace, right? And I think that's kind of what the message that's resonating in Lullaby Club in a lot of ways. I love, I love, I love, I love that you kind of highlighted honesty, but I want to kind of actually, um, I wonder what can this look like when it comes to advocating oneself, right? I think anyone here who's listening, they have a particular purpose, right? Maybe a mission or a drive. Um, You know, their work is for something. Maybe it's for themselves, whatever it is. But there's always the challenge of advocating for yourself, right? Even, um, especially when you want to be honest about certain things. I think maybe you can speak uh, into what does that look like for you with your music, right? Like, how do you kind of balance this whole imposter syndrome that everyone always kind of throws out there? And um, and what does that look like and what does that mean to you? This might sound like an oversimplification, but, like, I think that imposter syndrome is usually the result of, one, is people indicating to us that, like, they've got it all figured out, (laughs) which like fucking nobody does actually. Um, everybody is, everybody is fighting their own invisible war at all times and just trying to like figure their shit out. You know, even like, I won't say even I, but like I, in the midst of all this shit that I'm saying, am still fighting my own invisible wars where like, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out my work life balance. Cause like being clubhouse icon, like, it has not felt balanced. I know what I want. I know what I'm working towards, but it's still like something that I'm figuring out. Um, and so this is why I have an inherent mistrust of anybody that, you know, positions themselves as, as a guru of anything. Um, because life is complicated. <laughs> but like, I think if like, usually if somebody positions themselves as a guru, it's because they have something to sell. And they have something to gain by pretending to be somebody that has it all figured out. And I think the issue with that is that by projecting that out into the world and being like, I have it all figured out. Why don't you? Well, buy my shit ends up creating this, this environment where when we as people 
have a relationship with ourselves where we have these perfectionistic tendencies or we feel like we're not enough or we've been taught that we're not enough by abusive relationships, you know, intentional or unconsciously. Like, we, we take that into these environments where there are people who pretend like they've got it all figured out. And so you've got these two things meeting that create this sense of imposter syndrome because it's like, fuck, I need to pretend like, like every, everyone always thinks that they're the imposter, right? It's like, it's like it, when, you know you have imposter syndrome when somebody else who has imposter syndrome is like, I have imposter syndrome. And then you're like, oh yeah, but I'm the real imposter. <laughs> like no one knows I'm the actual <laughs> imposter. Like, and it's like this, this, this big secret. And so I think it, it, it really all comes back to like self love and vulnerability and for the ability for us to say, Hey, I don't have it all figured out and that's okay because no one does and creating an environment and a space where it's like, you know what? Imperfection is a part of life. It's a part of being human. There's no need to be perfect. My, my work with, you know, learning to love myself, learning to embrace the parts of myself that do not have it all figured out have made it much. I mean, I basically don't really struggle with imposter syndrome anymore. I'm just able to admit when I don't know shit (laughs) and I don't shame myself for not knowing it. And if somebody tries to shame me for not knowing it, it's easy enough for me to be like, well, that's kind of a you problem. (laughs) Like that's, I don't really need to, I don't need to take that on. Um, so it's not me claiming that I know everything, but I know that I don't know. And I'm okay with that. You know, it's so interesting for everyone who's listening and tuning in on the podcast just um, recently and learning about Axel and having Axel now share with us exactly how he feels about the imposter syndrome and about how people nowadays go about imposter syndrome. What does that look like? And this almost this perception and this facade that everyone is life, everyone's lives are going well. I wanted to ask you guys now to just kind of reflect upon, okay, does this resonate with me? Does this feel like something that I've gone through, something that I'm dealing with as I'm trying to, you know, grow personally, professionally, whatever it is, uh, whatever stage you're in, I'm kind of curious to hear what you think, because I think Axel brought up some interesting, interesting points here. Some that might be a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of people to hear, right? And, you know, everyone here, I think we all kind of have this almost invisible pressure coming to us when we don't always know where that comes from. Obviously, I'm not a therapist. We're not psychologists, but we are all humans and we have this innate ability to understand exactly what we're going through. And so on this podcast, the reason why we call it Good Grow Great is that we wanted to kind of explore that spectrum between, okay, what does it mean for each of us? Because it's going to be different from one person to another, but what does it mean for each of us to have a good life, to have a great life? And what can we do to grow to that point? And sometimes growing, right? That word growing, a lot of people go, well, I don't want to know. I don't know how to get bigger and, you know, batter and, you know, scale all these things, but growing 
uh, point of growth doesn't always mean bigger. It's not necessarily about quantity or size. Sometimes it is about just being, you know, just being still and just like what Axel was sharing, how you can allow multiple different aspects of your life to coexist and at the same place and being okay with it and finding peace in that kind of just chaos, right? So I want you to drop in the comment section below uh, you know, where, whether you feel like, you know, this is something that resonates with you. If it does resonate with you, drop a yes and share with us why and what specifically Axel and I have talked about that really kind of struck a chord, whether you agree with it or whether you disagree with it, right? And so share with us in the um, review section. I know it depends on where you're listening in, but a lot of um, perhaps even Apple, for instance, you have a review section. So drop your comment there and let us know what you think. And of course, be sure to hit follow, subscribe, add or collect. That way we can update you whenever we have episodes like this and episodes that really make us think, right, for better or for worse. So I wanted to encourage you to do that. Hit that button or share your thoughts in the review section down below. Until next time, we'll see you later. 